Hello and welcome to Watch It Baptist Church Online. My name's Mike. I'm the pastor at Watch It Baptist Church. You're here for part six in a series looking at the signs in John's Gospel. Signs are the miracles that John tells us about. He does say, as he tells the story towards the end of his account of Jesus' life, that the signs he's told us about aren't the only ones that Jesus did. And we believe that he told us the stories he told us, gave us the accounts of these signs because he felt that they told us something important. They signified something and he wanted us to understand that. So that's why we're looking at these. Last time we looked at Jesus walking on water. Today we're looking at something different. This time round we're looking in John chapter 9 and we're looking at the story of a man who'd been born blind and Jesus heals him. Now we're reading maybe a little bit more than we sometimes do this time around because there's quite a lot to have a look at about how John tells us this story and how we might understand it or, or what we might take away from it. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, the NLT. I'm starting at verse 1 of chapter 9 and it goes like this. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? And it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he spit on the ground made a mud with the saliva and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. His neighbours and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was and others said, no, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, yes, I am the same one. They asked, who healed you? What happened? He told them, the man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed and now I can see. Where is he now? They asked. I don't know, he replied. Then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed him. The Pharisees asked the man all about it. So he told them, he put the mud over my eyes and when I washed it away, I could see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man Jesus is not from God for he is working on the Sabbath. Others said, but how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was a deep division of opinion among them. Then the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, what's your opinion about the man who healed you? The man replied, I think he must be a prophet. The Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see. So they called his parents. They asked them, is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? His parents replied, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him, 
he's old enough to speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That's why they said, he's old enough, ask him. So for the second time, they called in the man who had been blind and told him, God should get the glory for this because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. I don't know whether he's a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind and now I can see. But what did he do, they asked. How did he heal you? Look, the man exclaimed, I told you once, didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they cursed him and said, you are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. Why, that's very strange, the man replied. He healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has ever been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. You were born a total sinner, they answered. Are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. Right then, let's get into it. My microphone has packed up and so I'm now doing things the old-fashioned way and we'll try working through this uh, and the song, bird song around me and the wind in the trees hopefully won't get in the way of it too much. As ever the thing we need to start with is looking at context. So John's Gospel we've said before it's a gospel about Jesus identity and about belief. The signs that John wants us to notice and see and, and have explained to us, John himself says later in the Gospel, they're not all of the signs. There's lots he did, lots that Jesus did that isn't written. But these ones are ones that he thinks signify something that he wants us to understand. So he tells us about them and they are signposts for us. This incident, this episode happens between the feasts of tabernacles and dedication. Also, this incident happens in chapter 9, so it's important that we look at what's happening in chapter 8. And in that chapter, we get a couple of things. One is Jesus starts off in that chapter by saying, I am the light of the world. So this idea of bringing light and sight is something that is continuing in this sign, in this miracle, from something that was being talked about before. And actually, this is chapter 9, you've only got to go back to, to chapter 6, where he's talked about Jesus walking on water to be able to see that Jesus intervenes in the darkness and it does not overcome him so we've got this um, light motif this light theme that's running through all of these things and all of it does echo back to uh, the prologue to John chapter 1 where John tells us uh, about how um, in him in Jesus was light and that light is the life of all mankind so John very good at keeping things tied together in terms of theme also in John 8, we get a dispute about Jesus' identity. And that chapter finishes with Jesus, sort of challenged by the Pharisees, says, before Abraham, I am. Now, if you want to just talk in grammar terms, that's not very good grammar. But actually what he's doing isn't so much saying, 
I'm really old, as he's saying I am, which is the, the Yahweh thing we've talked about before. That's a way in which God identifies himself by name. And so effectively what Jesus is doing is identifying himself as God by saying before Abraham, I am. Also, and this is not from John, it's from Luke, but I still think it's important. In Luke 4, we get the story where Jesus arrives at the synagogue and unrolls the scroll and he reads from Isaiah and he talks about um, declaring the year of the Lord's favour. And one of the things that he says will happen was that uh, he will bring sight to the blind. It's like a manifesto pledge or a series of pledges um, that he's, he's giving by quoting from Isaiah. So all those things are important context. And that takes us on to some points to note. Now, usually when I have some points to note, there are uh, you know, a number. This time, um, there was quite a lot that I wanted to just draw attention to. So I'm going to work through them fairly swiftly. First of all, this account, this episode is told in seven sections. So if, you, if you're into that kind of thing and you want to look at how the scholars break those sections up, you can do that. Um, you don't have to. Uh, but it's, again, John's love of numbers. So he likes to put things in sevens if he can uh, and also there's a there's a sort of literary shape to the story uh, that comes in and out of uh, a central point and, and anyway it's cool uh next jesus identifies himself as the light here as he has done in chapter eight so in verse five there's a clear indication that he's the light and that this harks back to the previous chapter at chapter 8 verse 12 but also all the way back as i said before to john 1 verses 4 and 5. next you'll notice from the very beginning uh, of this um, encounter this episode this part of the of the narrative that the disciples asked jesus about how this guy has been born blind how he comes to be born blind was it his parents fault or his fault and you might think well how can it be his fault um, some in Jewish tradition believed at that time that it was possible to commit sin in the womb so you could commit sin in the womb and then be born blind as a response to that uh, Jesus says no neither and I think it's important for us to note that the assumption the assumption, sort of fatalistic assumption uh, that the disciples brought and the Jewish culture brought was that if something if there's some suffering there must be some sin behind it. And Jesus is saying that isn't necessarily so. I think it's fair to say that we do see situations in the Bible where suffering is directly attributable to sin, but it's not universally the case and it shouldn't be assumed to be the case. There's a robin just over there. It looks really cool. Um, next, saliva. I spent years wondering what on earth was going on with this. So Jesus spits on the ground, uses the dust and the saliva to make a paste. Why do that? Well, there's two things going on here. One is that the mixing of the paste makes kind of a clay, and that is an echo back to God in Genesis 2 creating humanity from clay. So there is the work of the creator going on here. There's also uh, the use of saliva. Now, again, at that time, saliva was believed to have some healing properties. Although interestingly, not everyone's saliva would have healing properties. Only those who were the firstborn would have saliva with healing properties. Although actually even then, only if you were the firstborn of your father, if you were just the firstborn of your mother, then your saliva didn't have healing properties. So we've got the use of the dust 
and the saliva and that sense of clay. We've also got the idea that this means that you've got the creation of a, of a substance and, and effectively Jesus was, was doing kneading uh, and that would have been work. Hence getting into trouble for working on the Sabbath, also for healing on the Sabbath. Next, the pool. Well, I don't know if you remember, but a little while ago we talked about a man who was healed by a pool uh, the pool of Bethesda and he um, never really showed any interest in Jesus and doesn't give any indication that he believed in Jesus or is this guy's story is a bit different what's interesting is also is the name of the pool so the pool is called Siloam and Siloam means sent so Jesus who is the sent one sends the man to the sent pool and it's almost like John is saying please notice who's been sent here Please notice who it is who's responsible for the healing. It's the one who was sent. Um, it's also worth us being aware that the journey to the pool was not short. Now, I, I can't remember the detail of how this is understood to be the case, but there are those scholars who are confident of where in the city this encounter between Jesus and this man took place, and they are confident of where the Pool of Siloam was, and it was some distance to travel. Now, this guy was recognised in this spot by those who lived there, the neighbours around him, because he was the man who begged here. But then this guy who is blind and has mud on his face has to travel across the city in order to go and wash off the paste. And he does it. He does it because for some reason he trusts the man called Jesus. And this guy demonstrated faith and also a degree of defiance and courage as well. I'm going to pick up on a couple of things to do with that. So the guy originally calls Jesus the man called Jesus. That's in verse 11. But he goes on to refer to him as prophet in verse 17. As being from God in verse 33. In being son of man in verse 35. And in verse 38 as Lord. So there is a, a clear progression in this is a thing that happened to me through to this is the one who I'm now going to trust and answer to. Um, yes, so he demonstrates his faith and we see that development through the language that he uses. He also demonstrates his faith in how he handles being called to account or being questioned or interrogated about what's happened to him. Now this comes in different sections, so the neighbours around him, his community, those who recognise him and say, yes, he's that guy, and others go, oh no, he just looks a bit like him, and the man himself knows it really is me. So there is a recognition of, of who he is. And the, the people who live around him, they don't get it, they don't understand how this thing has happened. So when they take him to the Pharisees, they're not looking to get someone into trouble, they're just saying, we don't understand the Pharisees will understand if anybody does. So we're going to take this guy to the Pharisees so that we understand, so that we have answers. Uh, and after this conversation among neighbours, which leads to some of them going, well, it can only be for, of God, and others going, no, it definitely isn't of God. Um, they then, the Pharisees then call on his parents, A, to check he is who they think he is, and B, because they want someone to provide some answers. Pharisees themselves are looking for evidence of, of what's happened. And what's fascinating is that at this point, um, the Pharisees are drawing on a, a bit of teaching from Moses in Deuteronomy 13 about how false prophets will from time to time turn up and they'll, they'll perform miracles, but they won't be miracles, um, God's miracles. They will be 
drawn on some other kind of influence or power. Uh, and so that if this happens, you, you should put to death this false prophet. So the Pharisees are working off that basis. It's really important to identify whether this is of God or not of God, because if it's not of God, they are supposed to execute the person responsible for the miracle. So put that together with the fact that Jesus has already got a reputation for not playing by the rules and claiming things that Pharisees don't think he should be able to claim, such as referring to himself as I am. Uh, they've made a decision. Pharisees have made a decision that anybody who says that Jesus is Messiah will be put out of the synagogue. So that doesn't just mean they won't be able to come to church on a Saturday anymore. Um, it means that they will no longer be part of the community they're currently in because the community life revolves around um, Sabbath, the synagogue and, and you know, places of worship and places of teaching. The intertwining in that culture of religious life and, and everyday life is, is total. So you, you, can't, you can't be part of a community if you are excluded from its synagogue. And that means that these parents say, we're not willing to take the risk. We, we, we don't want to run the chance that we end up excluded from our community. We also don't want to um, claim our son is a liar, perhaps. But ultimately they say, look, don't ask us. We don't know. Ask our son. He's old enough to answer questions on his own, so ask him. So all this stuff is going on, and ultimately it leads to um, a rejection of the light. So the Pharisees and some of the neighbours ultimately say, no, this just doesn't stack up. It doesn't work. We can't see how this could be okay. And so they reject the light that is offered. There is one other thing that I think is worth noting. Um, so this is not the first time that there's been a, something in, in the gospel stories about what Jesus does or doesn't do on the Sabbath. It's interesting to note that um, nowhere in the New Testament, in the letters or the gospels, does anybody say it's really important that you keep the Sabbath? Um, and you will find those uh, in our contemporary Christian world who will say, Jesus never said we should keep the Sabbath, so let's not worry about it. I think my take on that is that from God's point of view, the introduction of the Sabbath was relational. It was the pinnacle of his creation, not so much to make humanity, but to create a space for humanity to share with God to rest in his presence and for him to know them and so I think while it's reasonable to say a kind of religious adherence to a strict way of keeping Sabbath don't think I don't think the New Testament asks us for that I think we'd be throwing the baby out with the bathwater if we didn't still look to keep Sabbath not always in that sort of religiously prescribed way but to keep it anyway and to use it as what God intended it to be, which is a connection point with him and, and a rest. Anyway, so that's, that's all the points to note. I think the thing I'd want to sort of add to that is to do with what it means to be able to see. Because I think what we find here is that uh, the Pharisees believed they could see everything. They believed they properly understood the lot. And what the man who's healed really does is say, I'm, I'm not convinced that you do. I'm not convinced you've really seen what's going on here. And he falls back on this thing where he says, 
whatever you might or might not think of Jesus, my experience is that I was blind and now I see and Jesus did that. And, and almost that evidence by itself shows us that God is at work here. There is a, a danger for us in that Pharisee way of behaving. And the healed man cuts through it all. I'll take you all the way back to, to verse 1 here, where, where the disciples say, well, whose sin was it? It's kind of a fatalistic way of seeing things. And the man says, kind of, fate isn't the thing that makes the biggest difference here. And, and actually, not only is fate not the biggest thing, doctrine isn't the biggest thing either. And, and cheap explanations are of no use. The only thing that actually makes a difference here is what Jesus does when he engages in your life. The man says, whatever else you might think, I was blind and now I see. And for us, clinging on to that essential truth of how Jesus has been present in our lives, that's always the thing we should come back to. Whatever else might or might not make sense, doctrine does not have a trump card over our experience of Jesus. The other thing that this healed man teaches us is that there is a need for courage. Even when faced with others who say they love and know God, sometimes there's the need for a courage that says, I'm going to stand by this Jesus who has stood by me. I'm going to be his person and I'm going to keep referring back to him and I will call him Lord. As we close this thing off, let's have a look at uh, that what kind of God question that we keep asking each time and the so what question. So what kind of God do we see at work here? What do we understand about God? Well, I think we could do a lot, but I think the thing I want to really sort of focus in on is that the kind of God we see here is one who brings light and sight. So he cuts through all the other rubbish, all the other sort of off-pat doctrinal explanations that don't really make sense. The one who cuts through maybe the assumptions that we make. It cuts through the belief that we might have that we can see everything, that we get it all. That, that the kind of God that we have is the one who brings light into all those situations and asks us, invites us, almost demands that we actually open our eyes properly and see, that we allow his creative power to smear mud all over our eyes so that we might see. And so what? Well, I think the so what bit is about how we make sure that the curtains stay pulled back rather than drawn in. If we're to avoid being the ones who, like the Pharisees, say, we know how this works. And, and what Jesus has done in your life can't be real because we know that God doesn't work like that. We, we, we've got to make sure that the kind, those kind of drawn curtains that block out our view, that, that they're pushed back. That we're able to say, Jesus works, Jesus does things in my life. And I will obey him and follow him and call him Lord because I know what he is like. Let's pray and then let's ask our three questions. Lord, open our eyes and keep them open.
help us not to be distracted by those who say their eyes are wide open but who actually have closed them and would you heal us when we get trapped in our assumptions of you would you help us to believe amen okay so here's our three questions for this session number one how can you keep your eyes open what good patterns what good habits can you get into so that your eyes stay open Question two, what's your experience of Jesus in your life? Not that the doctrine isn't important, not that the things that we're taught and the theology we come to understand, those things matter. But what's your experience of Jesus? This this guy, he was healed, he had an experience of Jesus. What's yours? Thirdly, how have you expressed courage in your faith? Okay, that's it for this time. We'll be looking at part seven of our series next time. Take care and God bless.